0: Welcome to grounding grief, a podcast dedicated to talking about grief. I'm Ann Beach, your host. If you like this episode, follow us, write a review, or email me at ann ann at groundinggrief.com. This is the 10th episode of grounding grief, the first of 2024. Through personal reflections and interviews with people who experience grief, I hope to normalize conversations about grief and provide insight into how to face it ourselves as well as help others in its grip. After nine episodes, I realize certain things never go away. Grief, brought on by the violent, unexpected loss of my daughter, is one of them. I've learned that in grief, we need both solitude and community, And the more readily we figure out what we need when, and are able to communicate it clearly, the easier it becomes to carry grief. Ten years ago. Those words hang in the air, echo on repeat over and over again, as they have since 2023 turned to 2024. Victoria died ten years ago. Since then, I have defined time by when Victoria was still alive, and after Victoria died. Countless times I've explored the questions, does grief get easier? Will it ever go away? Often the only way out of these seemingly infinite thoughts is to ask, how can I be gentle with myself? How can I be gentle with others? I pause and acknowledge that this year marks the beginning of double-digit years of grief instilling traumatic loss for me. A day has not passed without me thinking of or talking to Victoria. Often, she is my first thought upon awakening, and the last as I drift off to sleep. Her death in 2014 drew me closer posthumously to my paternal grandmother, who died in 1994. She, too, had buried her firstborn. He was 18 when he died, she 43. She lived until she was 91, and I remember how shortly after Victoria was killed, I sat and thought about my nanny. I wondered how she had endured almost five decades without him. I wanted to ask her, how many years do I have to endure this? I don't really know the significance of this line of thinking, but I do know it helped. It helped me to know that the woman I knew with the ready laugh and sparkle to her blue eyes most likely awoke each morning missing her son. And yet she arose, and on the days I was lucky enough to have slept over at her house, she did with a joy for living that was infectious. She was playful, patient, and kind. It strikes me now that I— her second grandchild was born just 12 years after her son died. I know firsthand how the birth of grandchildren both helps soften and highlight the pain of having buried a child. The first time I held my first grandchild, I fought the urge to succumb to the waves of grief as my mind wandered back to when I cradled my newborn daughter in my arms full of hope and promise imagining what the world had in store for her, now knowing how her story ended. I fought that urge because I didn't want to taint this beautiful newborn baby, the first of his generation on all sides of the family, with the sorrow that sits in my marrow. In time, he will learn that part of my story, but it need not be, nor color his. I struggled inwardly with joy and grief coexisting simultaneously, In all their power and glory, as I smiled down at this beautiful baby in awe of his perfection, my mind began to repeat the words I first heard echo unceasingly in the early days after Victoria was killed It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. In those early days, I often sat motionless except for the thumb and forefinger of my right hand stroking the back of my left one as I repeated this peculiar, involuntary mantra. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I wanted to shrink from those words for what possibly was okay with the situation. They confused me. I couldn't understand why they so incessantly filled the void left by her death. I searched for reasons why I kept repeating them. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Were they meant to soothe me? Or were these the final words I wished I could have told my daughter as she died? I never got to say goodbye. Her death unforeseen, so sudden, violent, and tragic. Had I been wanting to say that to her? To somehow communicate the tenderness and love I felt for her and will always feel for her? Or was I trying to find a way to ground my grief, to learn how to stand and step forward into life? Life after Victoria died seemed unimaginable. And yet, here I was, alive without her. Big questions swirled around. Questions like, how do I find a way to live, to see what is in front of me now rather than live in memories of her? How do I honor her? And in doing so, can I keep some part of her alive? Answers such as acceptance and forgiveness felt remote, unattainable. Early in my grief, I thought if I could focus on the day-to-day, grace might find its way to me. I handled so much so well after her death identifying her body, packing up her apartment, writing her obituary, sorting through her things, incorporating some into our home, meaningfully finding new ones for others. To an extent, this was a useful strategy, especially on the surface. And surface healing is important. Until my surface healed, I was unable to understand the deeper layers of grief. It was too painful to go there Yet, the deeper pains always found a way to surface. And as they did, I learned new lessons. I discovered that I had to acknowledge, sit in, and feel them in order to accept, forgive, live. Ten years in, I have come to expect new arisings of grief at unexpected times And I have hard-earned tools to help me through those gut-wrenching moments of paralysis, those moments I want to curl up into the fetal position and ruminate on her absence from our lives. In addition to sitting with them, I learned that I needed to share them in community, community of my choosing limited to those who were helpful to me. People who are helpful are those who innately understand grievers don't need fixing Time does not ease our pain. They know when to be there, how and when to show up. I also learned they're most helpful when I let them know I need help. They listen to my need for space without shying away or judging me, then appear when I return to the present. A couple of years ago, my husband and I moved from the home we raised our three daughters in to a condominium. Thirty-five years ago, when we first moved into that house the only bedroom on the third floor, tucked under a gable, small and cozy, with bookcases running the length of its longest wall, was perfect for a home office. Perfect, until Victoria, at age 11, asked to move up there, stating, I need a flight of stairs between me and them. The them being her younger sisters. That was 25 years ago, And for the remainder of her life, it was her bedroom, when she came home, and after she died, it housed her extensive book, CD, and DVD collections. Our daughter and son-in-law now live there with their growing family. Earlier this week, they mentioned they'd like to use it as a home office. I was amused that the next generation sought to restore it to our original use. Amused. And then, devastated. The idea that the time had come to clean out these tangible reminders of her life hit me like a ton of bricks. Grief welled up in me. I was startled. The pit I had felt in my stomach ten years before, upon learning of her death, returned. I trembled inside. My thoughts became distracted. This time, those physical reactions lasted less than two hours not the weeks or months they had in 2014. Challenged with this task, I stood in the doorway of her bedroom to assess the magnitude of it, a task I have to admit heretofore I had been unable to face. It was not only the emotional magnitude of removing her possessions that had stopped me, it was also its physical magnitude. When I packed up her Chicago apartment the day after she was killed, the total count of boxes was one wardrobe of clothes, one box of toiletries, one box of art supplies, and 19 boxes of books. How she loved books. I, too, am a book lover, so parting with them is hard for me under normal circumstances. And these are anything but normal circumstances. Standing in that doorway, I recalled a favorite story we often tell about Victoria. My gaze turned to the small hallway outside her bedroom as I remembered her father, youngest sister, Victoria, and me crowded there as we were about to send her off to college. She had, as she always did, packed herself, and we arrived on the third floor to help carry down the many suitcases. This was in the day each person could check two pieces of luggage, and the four of us were making the trip from Boston to Atlanta to see her off. When my husband stooped to lift the first one— He was stunned at its weight, and asked, Victoria, what do you have in there? Rocks? Evasive at first, she was slow to unzip it, unveiling its contents. Books. And many of them were mine. I scolded her, insisting I would reclaim them, and told her we'd ship the rest. Methodically, we pulled books out of each and every one of those suitcases. By her first trip home, however, I had softened and told her to take as many of my books as she wanted. I even told her, better for you to have them now to enjoy them than to wait until I'm gone. She took my words to heart. Thereafter, she helped herself to a number of them, and I am so glad she did. She actually read most of them, and of course, who knew I would outlive her by 10 years and counting. And so now it is time not only to part with the books that were once mine, but with the vast collection she amassed in her 26 years. As I formulated my plan, I paused and thought how to quiet this ache in my gut, soften the grip of grief around my chest and heart. And I realized I could not undertake this without letting others know I was doing it. I reached out to her sisters. My sister and some of my closest girlfriends to let them know her extensive library would no longer sit on those wall to wall bookshelves of her childhood bedroom. Some responded with a request for a particular genre of book, others gave me emotional support. Another thing happened earlier this month that helps me face this task. A couple of weeks ago, I allowed myself to be ruthless when it came to purging. A piece of historic family memorabilia that I had carried with me since my cousins, siblings, and I had split up Nanny's possessions on a sunny May afternoon in Syracuse, New York, back in 1994. That afternoon, I took the remaining personal items my Nanny had held on to of her firstborn, those of the Uncle George I never knew. She had had them for 48 years, I kept them an additional 30 years even moving them from our home to the condominium, where I stored them in a high-up, out-of-the-way portion of a closet. Earlier this month, I finally bagged and placed them in a textile recycling bin. Torn by the love I had for this uncle, a love that was passed down by my father to me, and a love for my children when I finally disposed of these items, I felt relief. This relief helped me focus on my surviving daughters. I do not want them to carry possessions of the dead forward in their lives, nor do I want my grandchildren to bear the task of clearing out such things. My children are burdened enough by having lived through the death of their beloved oldest sister. And so I am able to reconcile the painful return of grief with the present. It is time Time to free up those bookshelves, loosen my grip on and clear out her possessions, find new homes for them in order to make room for those of us still alive. The meaning of my mantra from my early days of grief remains a mystery, but one I am comfortable with now. Over time, the mantra and time itself have guided me, made grief easier and more gentle to bear. As I release tangible parts of Victoria's life out into the greater world, free them from the confines of her childhood bedroom, I find a newfound freedom to live. To live with the gentleness of her wisdom present in my heart, as I strive to need fewer material possessions and carry forward her attributes of giving and kindness. So I smiled when earlier this week I came across the following words about grief and loss— written by Lexi Berndt. It's okay. It's okay to miss them. It's okay to say their name. It's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to breathe deeply. It's okay to smile when you think of them. It's okay to function. It's okay to have days when you can't function. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be thankful. It's okay to love again. It's okay to remember. It's okay to hope. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to trust again. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grounding Grief. Next month, I most likely will return to the interview format and hope you tune in then. As always, if you like this episode, Follow us, leave a review, or email me your thoughts at Ann, A-N-N at groundinggrief.com.